the commemorative intent of that building is to reflect, you know, the permanence and order that, you know, good government brings to a region. But for Trundakwichan citizens, you know, that building represented so much more. It was, uh, it was Ottawa's long arm reaching across the country and imposing its its will uh, on the people here. This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. I'm in Dawson City, outside a grand three-story building. It's colonial in all the usual ways, box-like and large, with thick pillars framing the generous balconies. The facade is yellow with white trim and the grounds have neatly planted flower gardens. This is the former residence of the Yukon Commissioner, basically the head honcho of the territory during and following the Klondike Gold Rush. Now, it's a historic building managed by Parks Canada. One of the things that Parks Canada has decided to do is, is to tell a broader picture of these historic sites that we present. I'm on the front porch with Elaine, an interpreter with Parks Canada, and a small group of visitors who, like me, are along for a tour. Two of my fellow visitors are from Vancouver and one is from Scotland. Elaine sets the scene for what to expect today. So this tour is very different. Like I said, I, uh, previously we went in and talked about the role of the commissioner and you know how they would serve you tea and where the china came from. I don't know where the china came from, don't particularly care. (laughs) So the thing about this tour though is that I'm not going to be talking at you the whole time. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to participate and uh, you know sometimes we have big groups with people with uh, various different opinions. It's a smaller group today um, but it always relies on the concept that everybody is bringing their best self. Um, That just means that everybody is interacting in good faith. Everybody is Um, understanding that we're all products of our history, what we were born into, our biography. So we're all just bringing what we know to the conversation. And some of us know some things and some of us know the other. And uh, we're all just doing our best, right? Mm -hmm. So if that's a contract that we can all agree to, that's fantastic. So I'll ask you first, um, how much do you know about the gold rush? How much do you know about the gold rush? You probably know what you've read in Jack London books and seen in movies. And if you've been to Dawson City, this is what you might have heard. For the longest time, it's it's been, you know, the in, intrepid, adventurous spirit that came up here in search of gold. And it's always been focused on the gold and then the mayhem that ensued in the development of, of Dawson City. That's Janice Cliff. She's the Visitor Experience Manager for Parks Canada's Klondike National Historic Sites in Dawson City. You know, this boom town that sort of rose out of the, the swampy <laughs> moose pasture. And um, the, the focus on, on those stories and, and that um, uh, particular demographic, I mean, it was people from all over the world. It was you know, 70% of people from uh, the United States, uh, not a lot of women, a lot of men. And, uh, you know, what, what happened here was uh, just concerned with um, this driving desire in search of this elusive metal and, uh, you know, like what it would, um, how it would, would affect somebody's psyche and, you know, this, uh, this really, uh, 
intangible um, search. So that's the storyline, you know, along with, you know, like uh, the the good time girls, the the can-can dancing, uh, the, I think in um, one of our old displays, it was the whiskey, the wine, uh, that type of thing, and the women. <laughs> so that for the longest time uh, was the, uh, the storyline uh, that Parks Canada was talking about. And, you know, the Yukon promotes Dawson City with, with that particular storyline when they're promoting this as a destination. So it was all about the gold rush and uh, the characters that came along with it. How much space was given to the local First Nation, Tronda Kwechen? So when I, I started at Parks Canada as an interpreter, and so I was doing uh, the, the town programs, and it's not that it was absent, but it really became evident that this was one perspective that we were telling just one. <laughs> so we would we would mention, you know, that obviously this is, uh, you know, uh, the traditional territory of the Trondequitchen. We, we began doing land acknowledgements, uh, I think, as early as 2010. Um, but it kind of fell empty. It didn't have as much context or, or meaning when, you know, then we would just go on to talk about the body, you know, uh, dance hall girls at the Palace Grand. That narrative about the swarthy miners and the dance hall girls and the saloons is starting to shift to something more inclusive. All that other stuff is still there, but now there's a broader perspective being introduced. I came to Dawson City to experience it firsthand. In addition to Janice, I met with Jody Beaumont. She works for Trondek Wachin and was part of the team that helped Parks Canada with this process. Trondek Wachin history here is tens of thousands of years old. It, I mean, frankly, it doesn't have a date. That's a very colonial aspect to measure time in that way. Trondequichin have always been here. And so when you think of the gold rush, it, it's a couple years. Dawson, by the vast majority of Canadians, if it's known at all, is, is known as the home of the gold rush. Um, and the gold rush was the blink of an eye. For the, for the history of this place. Um, it certainly had impacts. Most importantly, it drew the attention of government. And once government came here, then we were in a situation where you had uh, a group of people colonized by a foreign power. Um, and, you know, we, we see that, we live with that legacy every single day in this community. And frankly, we live with it across Canada as well. And, uh, you know, when I... Jody who is a settler herself, says some Trondequetjen citizens felt like it was arrogant or wrong to criticize Parks Canada. So that's a place she felt comfortable stepping in. Parks Canada as an agency has been tasked with, with telling the world who we are. And the stories that they're telling are not ones that I, as you know, I'm a settler, but there's certainly, you know, when I think of some of those stories, women are missing. You know, there, there are all sorts of... Um, stories of who we are as a nation who are missing from that very highly edited and curated story of who we are as a country. And the worst part about it is that it's not nearly as interesting as all of these other pieces that we could be bringing in, you know, like to talk about a nation that exists with this, you know, foundation of many, many nations coming together in treaty, you know, and who have agreed to respect the identity and the ways of each other and share the land in accordance with this like multitude of laws and legal orders and practices and philosophies and ways of being, that's an incredible story. And we really, um, 
uh, we really underserve our our uh, our population if we're not talking about those things. You know, there are Trondikwichin citizens who, uh, you know, I'm thinking of um, uh, one person in particular because she shares the story, Debbie Nagano. She's our director of heritage. And when she was a teenager, this would have been in the sort of late 70s kind of thing. She she worked at her student position was with Parks Canada and she was telling, you know, the story of the of, of the gold rush. And she's standing up there going, I'm telling the story to all these tourists and not a single bit of it connects into my life, you know, to my my history, to my family, to my ancestors, to the way that we live now today. And there's something really wrong here. And, um, you know, so that just... In 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was tasked with facilitating reconciliation among survivors of Indian residential schools, their families, and all Canadians. As part of that, the commission came out with calls to action for Canadians. One of these called for integrating Indigenous history and values into Canada's national heritage and history. Janice at Parks Canada says that's part of what prompted her unit to take a hard look at the stories they were telling. I think we're really lucky in Dawson because uh, all of our interpreters here live here. Um, so they're already a part of the community. And I think that's really valuable because we live here. <laughs> we we want to to share um, the, the love we have of our community. And we want, we feel an imperative to, to tell the stories that include all perspectives. So I'm talking an Indigenous perspective as well as the perspective of women, uh, queer people. You know, it's it it, once you get started, (laughs) you kind of don't want to stop. And with that in mind, it it, it wasn't a very difficult transition for people to want to start sharing more of of what their community is about and that maybe there were um, impacts of this gold rush that we hadn't been examining and talking about before. Uh, and then, you know, we got really deep with one of the programs we do with Red Surge Red Tape. So, Red Surge Red Tape is the program I attended at the commissioner's residence. It's a specific response to uh, uh, the calls to action, number 79 in particular, where we want to change the narrative of our storytelling um, to include uh, the perspective of, you know, maybe some more difficult stories uh, to talk about. And we used um, one of our flagship built heritage assets, the the commissioner's residence, which is this really um, imposing and impressive piece of architecture on the banks of the Yukon River um, that has always been associated with government and administration in the Klondike. And that is the commemorative intent of that building is to reflect, you know, the permanence and order that, you know, good government brings to a region. But for... Trondequitchen uh, citizens, you know, that building represented so much more. It was, uh, it was Ottawa's long arm reaching across the country and imposing its its will uh, on the people here. And so that program, we decided to just reinterpret our commemorative intent. So uh, we just switched it to the perspective of being a uh, TH citizen here or 
being uh, a prospector here that was pushed out by changing mining regulations or uh, just being an ordinary person who might not have been invited to the commissioner's residence for, for social gatherings. So we just sort of turned it on its edge and started looking at it from um, perhaps a less represented uh, viewpoint of, of people. So you come around the bend, on the left you'd see a fish camp, or sorry, on the right you would see a fish camp, which is a Trondike Kitchen's fish camp. And then this dike wasn't here, so you would see this building here. After donning shoe covers to protect the floors, the four of us follow Elaine out of the bright sun and into the dark entryway of the commissioner's residence. It takes a moment for my eyes to adjust. Okay, so what do you think? We're in a wide hallway lined with moose and caribou racks mounted over wood-paneled walls. The carpet has a swirling pattern. Elaine says they don't know how welcome Trondequichin citizens would have been in this building when it was built in 1901. But one thing is certain, they probably wouldn't have felt at ease. Here's Elaine again. I should note, some of these clips have been stitched together for brevity. Also, Parks Canada asked me not to include the voices of the participants on this tour for privacy reasons. The commissioner was kind of like the CEO of the Yukon. And they attended to all the business concerns uh, in the area. They dealt with investors. Uh, like we talked about outside, the um, hand mining era was uh, very brief here. And uh, consolidation and capital moved in very quickly. And uh, so they were dealing with investors. And so the commissioner, uh, he would be responsible for talking to all of these people with their different conflicting interests in town. And... Um, determining uh, how to represent those interests to uh, the head honchos back in Ottawa. We know that he's probably giving more attention to the people who have the large corporations. And the reason I bring this up is the Trondequichin uh, form of government would have been very different to that. Um, so they had a clan-based system and uh, decisions are made uh, collectively, like a general assembly, um, where everybody has an e uh, every clan has an equal voice. Um, so already, mm. his decision-making process is hostile to the Trondequichin way of managing this land. And I say managing, and that in itself is a super-colonial construct, right? Mm. One of the largest impacts of the gold rush at the time was the displacement of the Trondequichin to the village of Moosehide, five kilometers downriver. Here's Janice again. There were conversations going on with the Northwest Mounted Police and the local clergy, uh, Bishop Bompas, that were talking about, you know, <laughs> to put it bluntly, like, where do we get rid of them? And uh, we have handwritten um, correspondence between uh, the Minister of the Interior and Constantine and Bishop Bompas outlining and detailing, you know, like, let's just find them a spot in the middle of the river. Um, it, it's language that's uncomfortable. Um, it's verbatim. And it just shows that the prevailing attitude towards Trondequichin at the time was, these were not a people, they were just a nuisance to be dealt with. So I'm going to play you a clip now. I'm going to warn you, uh, the language is of the time. Uh, so... <laughs> 1900, 1901, uh, so some of it is pretty racist, but uh, we will have a listen. Thank you for your time, Inspector. I'm here to discuss the difficulties facing the Indian people. Bishop, I assure you that everything is under control. As you know, the Indians were here on this ground long before us. 
And in the past year, their land, their hunting and fishing grounds, their home, everything they know has been upended. Well, Bishop, there is no progress without change. Inspector, as Bishop, I understand their view of the world, and it is fundamentally different from that of the newcomers. I believe that there has been a misunderstanding of the sale of cabins and land at Trochek. Please, the Confluence lands are no longer an option. They agreed to sell it and received fair compensation. A sale is a sale. But, Inspector, please. To the Indian, land cannot be owned, therefore it cannot be sold. In their minds, they were selling only their cabins, not their land. This transaction took deliberate advantage of the Indians. It was willful exploitation. The sale should be nullified. The sale was anything but willful or deceitful. It was legal and legitimate, and the transaction stands. But what ought they to do? The whites rob the land of its treasures. They hunt and chase off the wild animals and so deprive the Indian of his means of subsistence. Bishop, I have the matter under control. In fact, I have just written to Ottawa to propose moving the Indians to an island on either the Klondike or Yukon rivers. An island? How will they hunt? How will they fish? How will they find their food? Mr. Inspector, we cannot treat people this way. We need to provide them with a place where they can be safe from the influences of the liquor traders and the temptations of Dawson. Bishop, I am charged with creating law and order in this community and a future for all of Dawson for the hard-working white people in particular. The whites are the providers and workers in this country and should therefore enjoy its privileges. White people create all the jobs and all the opportunities here. The Indians can go work for them. This is not enough. The Indians need education. They need medical attention. They need land to build their homes on. They need stability. My job is to work for the good of the community within the constraints of good government. May I remind you that the Indians are a part of this community. We are all God's children in his eyes. Constantine, our actions will not go unnoticed by God or by history. At this point in the program, we're sitting in a circle in a living room. I guess it's probably called a drawing room. When Elaine explained that Bishop Bompas, despite his seemingly progressive words, went on to be one of the architects of Indian residential schools in the Yukon, the visitor from Scotland asked what a residential school was. Rather than answering him, Elaine asked if anyone else would like to provide a definition. Another visitor explained that residential schools were government-sanctioned, church-run schools that First Nations children were forced to attend, literally torn from their homes, and that stripped them of their culture and language. These schools ran from the 1880s to 1996. Here's Janice Cliff again. We use a, a technique called um, facilitated dialogue. Uh, it's gaining traction uh, as far as an interpretation style that's much more based on a conversation. And it's a terrifying program for our interpreters to deliver because they don't know where it's going to go. You have no control when you pose questions to people and invite their worldview into the conversation. Luckily, I'm really happy to say that the majority of the response is, it's about time, we're happy to have this conversation, it's necessary, it's long overdue, uh, but we do encounter some real pushback and challenge uh, from some people that are not ready to have that conversation. Uh, those ones rattle you. <laughs> those ones, uh, you know, you, you walk away from delivering that program and um, you realize that you can't change all minds, but all we're really trying to do is plant a little seed uh, to, you know, hopefully have people go back to their hometowns and maybe look at, you know, what's going on in their neck of the woods and look at it a bit differently. This national conversation that's been ongoing recently has really 
move the ground beneath the Canadian national identity and that we don't know how to talk about this um, without giving up this, you know, bl blanket of, of quiet nationalism that we're yeah. used to. So it's um, just in the past five years or so, I would say that conversation has really been at the forefront of, of, um, of society and we're all trying to figure out how to have these conversations and some people are very ready for it and some people are not ready at all. Uh -huh. And part of the reason we're doing this programming is, is to like, you know, foster that conversation and have it in a way that is not so, um, I don't want to say antagonistic, but it is not so polarized, like is to like meet at this place where I think all Canadians can say, I don't want my family taken away. I wouldn't want my, you know, to be hit for not speaking a language that I didn't know how to speak. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very difficult. I'm sure that you have encountered people all of you in your life who aren't ready to talk about this uh, or who feel blamed uh, and feel defensive, maybe. We've had people in here, um, they were second generation Canadians, but uh, she remembered her father, uh, her grandfather was Ukrainian, also mm -hmm. had his language taken away. Mm -hmm. yeah. And she said, well, you know, why my, my grandfather also was sent to school. He also had his language mm -hmm. taken away and I'm not angry. And it was a interesting way to relate to somebody who was, you know, not ready to be sympathetic because they hadn't heard their cultural loss acknowledged. And when everybody in the room said, yeah, that's awful, wouldn't it be nice if you could speak Ukrainian and, you know, because she clearly had a connection to where she had come from and, you know, went to Ukrainian festivals as a child and really felt sad that she couldn't speak it. And it was like, oh, okay. And as immediately once that had been acknowledged, like you could see mm -hmm. that her disposition changed. So I think that there's, you know, there's room for a plurality of, of ways of coming at these conversations to get to the same place, which is how do we make sure, I used to say, how do we make sure it never happens again? But now I say, how do we make sure it stops happening and never happens again? So that's how Red Surge Red Tape is going. Sidebar, if you didn't make the connection or aren't Canadian, Red Surge is a reference to the red woolen coats worn by the Northwest Mounted Police, who played a major role in law enforcement during the gold rush. To get to the point of launching Red Surge Red Tape, Parks Canada and Trondekwichin staff participated in a three-day camp on the land. Janice Cliff. We had TH elders that were sharing their stories and essentially, I don't like saying this, but like not giving permission, but letting us know that it's our responsibility to shoulder the burden of these stories. And we can, like we can definitely use our platform for, for this type of change. So all of these things coming together in this perfect magical storm is, is why we can offer this program. I, I think that that's pretty miraculous when you think of a, a government agency that's, you know, going to these lengths to be able to tell the story. So Jody Beaumont at Tronic Winchin reiterated something Janice said earlier that Dawson is a small town. There are friendships and overlapping connections between people who work at Parks Canada and with the First Nation. She says the change wasn't top-down. As she saw it, it was triggered locally by individual action. I think that there were people there who recognized that they were not serving this community well. 
and they reached out and they were reaching out long before this ever became uh, something that, that they were going to do. We were thrilled that Parks Canada was going to look at something, especially a program happening in the commissioner's residence. Because that building, you know, everything about it, and I appreciate that building, you know, as, as a piece of architecture and, the, you know, the things like that. But holy cow, can you, like, can you look at a better visual example of domination and oppression, you know? And, um, you know, to have a program like that start uh, disrupting that narrative in a building that was sort of the seat of power, you know, not just for Dawson, but for all of Yukon up into the mid 50s. Um, that was a real opportunity. Janice at Parks Canada says the process of going on the land and working with Tronda Quichin was monumental for her and her staff. We all came out of it completely changed. <laughs> I can't describe it any other way. It, it was, I've lived in Dawson for over 30 years. And I those three days were, were transformative. Um, we came away with, you know, better connections to each other, uh, a much better understanding of the, the people that we walk these streets with. And, you know, people who I've known for over 30 years and had you know, absolutely no idea that this was their life story. So it's amazing that when you just sort of open your eyes and, and start to unlearn a lot of the stuff that you uh, maybe have been fed in the past, it it's a really beautiful experience and it allows you to be in your community in a different way. And I think that's the, the most important thing for our team here is that we're all actively pursuing this in our personal lives as well as our work life. That's kind of rare, I think. So these are all the calls to action that came out of that Truth and Reconciliation Report. My understanding is the Canadian government, for all its talk about reconciliation, has ticked off seven of these. Uh, so still a lot of work to go. At the conclusion of Red Surge, Red Tape, Visitors are invited to write down an action as a personal commitment to reconciliation. If they want, they can post it on a bulletin board for others to see. There are comments like, I commit to learning the traditional place names around my hometown. And, I commit to understanding my biases, prejudices, and leaving them behind. If you find yourself in Dawson City and are ready to think about your own role in reconciliation, you might want to check out Red Surge Red Tape. It runs daily until September 4th. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Please share this episode and leave us a review. It really helps. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. And for a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steele Street, across from City Hall. There's a great selection of clothing, hats, stickers, glassware, and more. Do you have something to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at North of Ordinary. You can also contact me, Karen McCall, with feedback or story ideas. Editor at northofordinary.com is my email. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Our podcast artwork is by art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming out soon. I hope you listen in. Thank you.